Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. Good morning. Can you hear me? Okay, great. Wasn't sure whether this was on or not. At the other service, it was kind of echoing, you know. It was one of those... Uh, kind of really deep James Earl Jones voices, you know, the one you hope for all the time. Like Everett turned up the treble, turned down the bass, and, you know, now he makes me sound like Pee Wee or something. <laughs> Anyways, it's great to be back here once again at, at Christ Church in Tulsa and to be with you this morning as we, we baptize, confirm, and receive a number of folks into the Episcopal Church. It's always a great celebration uh, to, be, to be part of that. Um, I want to just say that you all are like doing a magnificent job here. You really are. You should be real proud of yourselves. And, and uh, Father Everett has been, you've just been a great leader and a support to, uh, to this congregation and to me as your bishop, and I thank you very much for that. So. <clears throat> Some of you may not know that besides uh, being the spiritual leader of this congregation, Everett also serves on the standing committee of our diocese. Um, that's the committee that's supposed to keep me out of trouble. Um, and uh, he is also the, the vice chair of our diocesan council. That, for those of you in the corporate world, that's our board of directors of the, of the church and so forth. So you may have, um, may have heard a rumor recently that there's um, going to be a new bishop in Oklahoma. Um, that's not a rumor, it's truth, sadly. But uh, Everett is also very much a part of that process. He is, as uh, being part of the standing committee, it's the standing committee's responsibility uh, to present candidates and nominees to the diocese uh, for the election of your new bishop. So um, if Everett doesn't do a good job, it's his fault, okay? If he does a really great job, then I'm going to take the credit for appointing good leadership. But uh, please keep uh, uh, Everett and also one of your church members, Andy Richardson, is that correct, is, on, is actually on the search committee. So please keep them in your prayers over these next... Um, I think we're down to 16 months. April 18th, 2020 is the consecration date for the new bishop. So uh, that's 12, 14 months. Oh my, I'm, I'm a shorter timer than I thought I was. But um, keep them in your prayers. One thing I want you to remember also is they can't tell you anything. Okay? So you can ask all you want and mum's the word. They will not share anything with you because that's the way the process works. And, and one of the reasons for that is that um, is not only so that they can do their work without interference or other things, but is those people who are offering themselves up uh, to discern whether or not they, they are called to be the bishop of Oklahoma or for any diocese for that matter, um, it would not be good if that word got back to the places where they serve now. Because you can imagine a lot of people would begin to think, oh, you don't like us. You know, you don't want to be with us, and it can, it can cause things. And the other thing is that, that that process is a process of discernment, not just for uh, our church here in Oklahoma, uh, but for those who may feel a sense of call to be here. So we, we, we do that kind of, um, I don't want to say in secret, but we do it trusting that the leadership we have is, is uh, fulfilling their responsibilities in trying to find the best possible candidate that we can have uh, here in Oklahoma. So uh, please, please, again, like I say, keep them in your prayers as well as the, uh, the rest of the nominating committee and the, um, the standing committee as well. I was, um, when, I, when I came in earlier this morning, I was reading through your bulletin, and I was, uh, I just, I love the, have you all read the welcome that you all have in your bulletin? 
the thing is, this is so cool. I mean, really, I just, I, I love it. It says, we, um, we extend a special welcome to those who are single, married, divorced, gay, filthy, rich, dirt, poor, no hubble English. Um, we, we, gotta, we probably need to put the, the official language of the Episcopal Church are English, French, and Creole, so you need to get those other two in there as well. So um, we extend a special welcome to those who are crying newborns, skinny as a rail, or could afford to lose a few pounds. Yep. We welcome you if you can sing like Andrea Bocelli or like our pastor who can't carry a note in a bucket. I told the earlier service that I love people who are honest about themselves. Uh, you're welcome here if you're just browsing, just woke up, or just got out of jail. We don't care if you're more Catholic than the Pope. By the way, I don't know if you, I know Pope Francis, and he was a, he was a bishop in, uh, in South America. Um, and to be honest with you, he's more Anglican than he is Catholic, but that's another story. Um, the Pope, or haven't been in church since little Joey's baptism. We extend a special welcome to those who are over 60, but not have grown up yet. That's me. And to teenagers who are growing up too fast. That's happening. We welcome soccer moms, NASCAR dads, starving artists, tree huggers, latte sippers, vegetarians, junk food eaters. I'm, I'm, I'm missing the golfers. It's uh, you know, the, the hackers and things. We extend those who are in recovery or still addicted. We welcome you if you're having problems or you're down in the dumps or you don't like organized religion. We've been there too. If you blew, off your, blew your offering money at the dog track, you're welcome here. We offer a special welcome to those who think the earth is flat, work too hard, don't work, can't spell, or because grandma's in town and wanted to go to church. We welcome those who are inked, pierced, or both. We offer a special welcome to those who could use a prayer right now, had religion shoved down your throat as a kid, got lost in traffic, and wound up here by mistake. We welcome tourist seekers and doubters, bleeding hearts, and you. This is an incredible message, and I know it's tongue-in-cheek in many ways, but it's also real world. It's, it's very much where we live. It's very much about who we are uh, in this kind of thing we call society and, and whatever. And the one thing that stands out for me about this is what it, what it says, what it says about you as, as a faith community, is that it is truly about every single person being welcomed. Now, we could probably come up with some other adjectives or nouns or something like that of, of things we left out. I mentioned a couple, you know, golfers and that kind of stuff. But, but we, we've, we've painted a picture, a picture that says it doesn't matter who you are or what you are or where you come from or how you dress or anything else. You can find a place here. And that's the message of Jesus Christ. The message of Jesus Christ is that all human beings are children of God, and all human beings are entitled to be part of God's kingdom, regardless. Everybody's welcome. Now, that's the philosophical part of this. Unfortunately, the reality of our world and our society today doesn't paint that same picture. I don't think any of us would disagree that, that what's going on around us in the world today is, is more about division, more about those who want to claim to have the truth, more about those who want to say who are in and who are out, who are worthy and who are not, than about proclaiming a message of 
come be part of us, you're welcome here. I fear that, that we are living in a place and time in our society, in our world today, where we have lost the desire to live in community. We've lost the desire to, to be about raising people up, and it seems like everything that's happening around us is, is more about tearing people down, about being judgmental, about, about um, saying that you're not entitled to live into whatever it is that God intended you to be because of something whether where you're born or who you're born to or your class in life or the language you speak or the color of your skin or the colors you add to your skin or whatever you want to say to it. We've gotten to this place to where the world has become judgmental and wants to be self-determining in many ways. How many of you feel like that you're living in a time and place where you're being forced to choose one side or the other. And it may be multiple sides. But you're being forced to identify with a particular way of life or a philosophy of life or a belief system or whatever it is. But, but we're all being put into this place to where I think we're even fearful to even answer a question about what do you think about X, Y, Z? Because you just don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how people are going to respond. You don't know what's going to come next. And so instead of us growing together, instead of us reaching out to one another, instead of us having conversations, instead of us trying to live our lives together where we raise people up and we're doing the best we can for everyone around us, we're pulling back. We're stepping away. We're not saying as much, or we're keeping our opinions to ourselves. And the only voices that we seem to hear out there are the voices of extremists in places that want to do more to separate us and divide us and tear us down than raising us up. This is not a political commentary. I'm not running for office after I leave being bishop talking about the reality of the world we live in today. And that's not the world that God created. That's not the world that God created through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. It's not what he intended for us. His intent is what you've said here, is that all people are welcome to come and to learn and to know and to grow and be nurtured and to become everything it is God intended for them to be. Not to be judged and torn down and cast aside or told you're unworthy. We are at a point in time in our history where I think, at least in my lifetime, and I grew up in the 60s and I was old enough in the 60s to know what was going on, watch it, that we are more separated and segregated now than we were when racial segregation was real. It's real today, but I mean where we actually had the signs that said whites, blacks. Where we actually had the truth about be on the right side of the track after dark or else. And I fear that we're not going in a direction that's going to bring us back. We're going even deeper into that place. 
Because somehow, we've gotten to this point in time in our world and our society where we're being told, you need to focus on you. It needs to be about you. You need to get everything you can get, and you need to do it in any way you can do it, and it doesn't matter who you have to step on to get to it, but you better go out and get what you can get and hold on to it because somebody wants to take it away from you. How many of us are enjoying the way that our world and society are going right now? How many of us worry every single day when our children go off to school and we wonder that, is there someone out there who realizes or thinks that their last great act of humanity is to go into a school and shoot up a bunch of kids? How many of us wonder when our spouses or our partners go off to work, whether there's going to be some disgruntled employee who comes in and acts out violently against others? How many of us are concerned just by the permission that has been given in our world and society today that there are going to be others out there who take offense to something we may say or cutting them off on a road or whatever it is, and they feel like they have license to act out against us? I think we've lost the the common decency of society. We've lost the the things that used to temper us back a little bit, make us think before we said or acted. And we're living in a place now where it's anything goes. It's not what God intended for us. (laughs) Now, I've probably painted a pretty dark picture right now. You're all probably going like, well, thanks, Bishop. Came to church this morning looking for an uplifting message. Came to church this morning. We have some wonderful music we're singing, and we're going to be fed in a few moments by the body and blood of Christ, and we're going to go out of here with a spring in our step, and you've just drug us right down. Well, there is good news. There's a positive side of this. Because I don't believe that's the world we have to live in. I don't believe that we are destined to be in a place to where it's an all-out, everyone for themselves. I think that each and every one of us has the opportunity and the ability to change the trajectory of where our world is headed. And it doesn't require us to do much of anything, if you want to know the truth, other than just a conscious effort to live our lives as the disciples of Jesus, which we claim to be. This morning, we're going to baptize and confirm and receive some folks from the church. And as as part of that process, each and every one of us will have the opportunity to renew our baptismal covenant. That's the, the covenant, the promises that we made or were made on our behalf by our parents, godparents, sponsors, when our baptism took place, of how we are going to live our lives in the world. It's our roadmap. It's, it's, it's our guidelines. It's the, it's the thing that tells us that if we do but this, God will take care of the rest. And life can be good. The first thing that tells us is that we're continuing the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. The very first thing our covenant tells us is that we are called to live together in community, in fellowship with one another. Yes, each and every one of us has our own individual spiritual journey that we're on in our relationship with God through Christ. And that's an important part of who we are. But that individuality is lived in the midst of community. 
It finds its fullest meaning and purpose in the midst of all of us together. We gather together, whether it's in houses of worship like this, or it's in neighborhood little coffee cliques, or at places of business, wherever it is, wherever we gather for whatever purpose it is, we gather together with the understanding that whatever it is we're doing, we're doing in fellowship with one another. That it's supposed to be about doing the best for all of us who are engaged in that process. And then we're reminded that we're, we're nourished and we're energized and we're fed by coming back and receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That spiritual food that feeds us and helps us to live into to being his disciples in the world. And then it tells us we're supposed to go out from those communities, from those places of fellowship, to go out into the world and be the example of Jesus Christ. To persevere in resisting evil. Whenever we make a, re- a mistake, to repent and return to the Lord, come back and seek forgiveness. The operative word there is repentance. That means you can't come back and ask for forgiveness and then go back out in the world and do it again. There's supposed to be an amendment of life, an attempt at least of changing the behavior that caused us to do that. But the gift we have in the death and resurrection of Jesus is that that with a true contrite heart, we're forgiven. It's set aside. It's washed away. We're renewed and we're refreshed. And Jesus says, go back out into the world again. Go back out into the world and do it again. Show my love. Show my peace to others. We're told we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's a great golden rule, as we've all been told, right? How many of you had grandmothers that kind of beat it into your head when you were growing up? Mine used a two-by-four. <laughs> you ever thought about what it really means? Love your neighbor as yourself? The depth of what that really means? About five or six years ago, I was in Israel with a group of high school students. Some of you may have heard this story before. We were, we were sitting around one evening after visiting some holy sites in the, in the Holy Land, and, and one of the, the kids asked, what does it really mean to love our neighbors? Does it mean we just like hug each other and sing Kumbaya? I mean, you know, I mean, it, what does it mean? The best thing I could think of at the moment was I said, I want you to imagine it's, it's Friday night. It's the night of the big game. And your last prayer before you go on the field to play is that you hope your opponent wins. If we truly want to love our neighbors as ourselves, don't we want them to succeed? Don't don't we want them to achieve everything that that God hopes or aspires for them to achieve? Don't we want them to be able to use their gifts and their abilities and their talents to the fullest potential? What would the world be like if, if instead of tearing people down or, or judging them for something they did, we, we celebrated their accomplishments? That we set aside the envy and the jealousy and we just said, you know what? God bless them. Might our outlook on life be a little different? Might the outlook in our world of society towards each other be a little bit different? 
says we're supposed to strive for justice and peace in the world and respect the dignity of every human being. That means if we see something that's wrong, we say something about it. If we're, if we're in, a, in a coffee shop at Starbucks or wherever it is that you go to spend $8 on a cup of coffee, and the person in front of you is being treated rudely because of who they are or the way they're dressed or how they smell or how they look or the color of their skin, and you step up there and the person offers you pleasant cheese, we'll say, hi, how can I help you? You say, why didn't you treat that person that way? doesn't mean we stand on a street corner pounding our Bibles in our wrists, yelling at cars going by, or knocking door to door, passing out tracks. But it means when we see something we know is wrong, we stand up. We recognize that, that every child of God is deserving of respect, regardless of who they are. We, we have plenty of time to judge one another. We got, we got plenty of time for that person to prove to us otherwise, okay? Doesn't, doesn't mean that respecting someone doesn't mean that whatever they do is okay, okay? Read scripture. The Bible's full of how we, we hold each other accountable about what we do when we've been wronged or somebody does something wrong. The community says, hey, that's not how we're intended to live together. But what would it be like if we started from a place of respect at the beginning? It says we're supposed to Respect the dignity of every human being. Now, I, I, I mentioned this earlier I, at the other service. I said, I've, I've talked to my seminary professors. I've talked to the presiding bishop. I even asked this question to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Where's the secret list? Because there seems to be a thought process in the world and society that respect the dignity of every human being except these people. There is no asterisk. There's no secret list. There's no hidden meaning in Scripture. There's no secret piece of paper with little holes punched out about it. When you lay it on top of Scripture, you get all the letters and it spells it out for you. There's no deciphering code. We respect the dignity of every human being. You've articulated that here in your welcome. White, black, red, brown, straight, gay, non-defining, tattooed, pierced, doesn't matter. Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, it doesn't matter. Jewish, Muslim, atheist, agnostic, it doesn't matter. Every human being is a child of God, and we start from a place of respect. What would the world be like if in every day in the encounters that we have, whether they're at home or at work or in our schools or on the street, in a grocery store, wherever it is, when someone's coming towards us and we know we're going to have that moment of howdy-doody or whatever, that before we begin using all those filters we have and judging them and sizing them up, whether it's somebody we, know, we don't know and we're, we're judging and sizing them up by the way they're dressed or the color of the skin or the language or spelling or the perfume they're not wearing, whatever it is. Or it's somebody that we know and we know, oh, I know all about that person. They're doing this, this, and this. Before we go there, 
What if the first thing we saw was the face of Jesus Christ? What if the first thing you saw was Jesus walking towards you? What would you say? How would that conversation begin? How would that person respond? We have plenty of time to fight. We have plenty of time to be passionate about the things that we think are important. But might we get to a different place if we started those conversations first with the love of Christ instead of coming into the room already predetermined that we're not going to like this person, we're going to hate them, and we've already fired off a bunch of tweets and Facebooks and everything else that's out there technology-wise stating how we feel about them before we've even met them? Might there be a little bit of difference? Any of you remember when uh, uh, Senator John McCain's funeral a few months ago? One of the things that stood out for me was that there were just a number of folks who spoke about, about Senator McCain and about relationships. And two that stood out for me were, were, were uh, um, Joe Biden and Joe Lieberman. Now, John McCain was a Republican. Biden and Lieberman were Democrats. Okay? But the thing they talked about was their relationship. And one of the things that they mentioned was that they had all gotten chastised by their party leadership. Do you know why they got chastised by their party leadership? They had coffee together. The leadership said it's inappropriate for you to have conversations with one another or have a relationship outside the Senate floor. It could be perceived that you're not on board with our agenda or where we want to go. It could, it could hinder your ability to stand your ground against somebody you might have a relationship with. Think about that. We don't want to know each other. Because if we know each other, we might like each other. I dare say we might even love each other. And how can we argue if we love each other? I think we can argue pretty good. Ask my wife. <laughs> it's the make it up that's fun. <laughs> the idea is if we have a relationship with each other and, and we're, we're arguing and we're passionate and it's okay. It's okay to be passionate about what you believe in. It's okay to debate. It's okay to, to argue. That's what God intends for us to do, to find our way. But if Carl and I like each other, and we have a relationship with each other, and he knows my wife, and I know his wife, and our children know each other, it's just a little bit harder for me to call him a name. But more importantly, when he argues his position and argues my position, we both know that we're good people. And that we're just trying to find our way forward for everyone concerned. What would it be like? What would it be like if we started from a place of liking each other instead of hating each other from the very beginning? Senator John Danforth, some of you my age will remember him from the 70s and the 80s. 
He's an Episcopal priest. He wrote a book a number of years ago about politics and religion and stuff, and he was at the House of Bishops meeting, um, and he giving us all a free book. <laughs> we get a lot of those from the bishops and stuff. But he and I were having coffee, and he talked about, we were talking about the, the discourse that's going on in our politics and in our, in our leaders in the world today. And, and he said, he said, he, in his opinion, he saw the biggest change in the way that, that business as usual worked in that world when they closed the Senate lunchroom. The party leadership decided that it was not good for the senators to share lunch together. They might come to like each other. He said, when they, when they did everything they could do to separate us, if they found out that you went to someone's home for dinner, you got called on the carpet for it. If, you, if your kids even associated with their kids, it was, you shouldn't send your, so if you're, if you're one politician, your kids go to this school, your kids should go to a different school because we don't want the two to mix. Because it might change how you view somebody else's opinion away from whatever it is that they want you to believe. We are living at a time and place where the world wants to tell us that nobody belongs. And Jesus brings us a different message. For all you young people in the room, I guess, well, the, I don't know, are millennials still considered young? I'm just asking. I mean, I'm, I'm way beyond that whole, you know, price. But millennials and, and what are they called, Gen Zers now or some Gen Zers? From those of us from the silent and baby boomer generation, we're sorry. We messed it up real good. But every one of you can change it. You can change in how you live your life as the example of Jesus in the world, and that can change the world that we live in. But it starts here. It starts with your commitment to being the example of Jesus, to being the disciple you claim to be in your baptism. And all it means is that we go out into the world, we start from a place of respect and love. We start from a place of wanting to get to know one another. A place in a willingness for forgiveness. A place in a willingness to listen to what others have to say without predetermining what our response is going to be so we can understand one another. And if Carl and I do that piece, a couple of the others do it between you and somebody else does it between them. Guess what? At some point, we got something called a movement. Our presiding bishop calls it the Jesus movement. Something that, that can become so powerful, it can change the world. Because we know Jesus changed the world. If you don't believe that, then let's talk. But we can make a difference. Anybody ever heard of a thing called the Beijing butterfly theory? Anyone? So the theory goes that somewhere in Beijing, China, in the middle of a field, sits a butterfly on a flower. And for whatever reason, that butterfly takes off. It flaps its wings. And that little bit of turbulence startles another butterfly who takes off. And then another one. And another one. 
And pretty soon there are thousands of butterflies in a field in Beijing, China, flapping their wings. And then you have a thunderstorm in Chicago because the turbulence builds. It gains energy and momentum and it moves across the world. We are the butterflies of Jesus' love. It's up to us to spread our wings, to begin flying with his love around the world, because in that we can change where we're headed. And in that we can get up every day celebrating life, not worrying about life. And every day we can get up proud to claim to be the disciples of Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to baptize and confirm and receive, and we're going to have an opportunity to renew our baptismal covenant together. And I invite you to do more than just read the words off the pages of our bulletin, but to own them, to live them, and let them be the guiding force in your life as we go about bringing to the world the peace and love of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more, go to ChristChurchTulsa.org and peace be with you.